There's a verse uh, that the Buddha gave once that says something like, there are happinesses that are lesser and happinesses that are greater. And the wise person, upon seeing this, easily lets go of the lesser happiness for the greater one. It's kind of straightforward, you know, when you hear that. Um, it seems clear enough that that would be an easy choice to let go of one that isn't as good, might be good, but not as good for one that's better. And it's like this, actually, as the path evolves, the act of letting go and moving towards something that we aspire to, something that feels more sublime, more happy, more easeful, more peaceful to us, is actually quite a natural movement. That doesn't mean it's always easy, of course, because there are things blocking that, mostly our ego, which is very clear about liking lesser happinesses. <laughs> but one thing that practice does is it continually undermines the tendency to make the wrong choice about, about those two different kinds of relative happiness. So there's a way in which practice gives us better and better reference points with which to measure what's brought, what I'm broadly calling happiness. So for example, often when people start practice, you know, maybe they take an MBSR course or they come here on a weeknight or a noon sit and they just try out meditation with some sense that this might be a good thing to try. Uh, fairly often people experience a greater degree of calmness than they knew before, or they realize that they like sitting there quietly with their eyes closed, that they never do that during their busy day. And it's like, oh, this is so nice. And then you have that reference point. That's actually the first instance of that, is that you realize that stopping, even for just a moment, even if you don't even know what the instructions are or how to do it, that that somehow feels truer and important compared to doing one more text on your phone or something. And so, you know, there's that choice starting to be made and there's that sense of, oh, it can be more like this. So I wanted to kind of frame the path as this movement toward greater and greater happinesses. And we can, there isn't exactly a list of different kinds of happinesses, but it can be extracted from the teachings and, you know, from our own understanding. There are <coughs> happinesses that relate to getting pleasant things, you know, like um, our favorite coffee or chocolate, or these are the typical examples, but even things like a really nice soft sweater or um, a house that we really like. 
or even within, this is this would be all in the category of what's called sense pleasures. And even within those, we know there are lower ones and higher ones, right? But you know, this is all within that category of things that we acquire through our worldly life. And the Buddha does not, um, does not completely discard these. You, know, you might think that I'm setting you up to say these are completely irrelevant, but they're not. The, um, the Buddha recognizes that having certain things in life can be a support for practice. Having good relationships is a basis for developing mental qualities. So that's actually starting to move up into a higher happiness. But even the physical things, um, you know, there's a need for uh, a stable enough life situation and a certain degree of health that we can practice well. We need that at the beginning, especially. And even, I was just reading a sutta earlier today where the Buddha says that um, people who desire sense pleasures will uh, delight in heaven if they give during their lifetime, give food you know, to people in need. So, you know, he acknowledges that, that rewards come from um, that's kind of carnal rewards can come through our lives and that they're um, useful to us in certain ways. However, that is only the first kind of happiness. And, you know, it goes on from there to happinesses that are associated with uh, doing good things in the world. So with giving food, for example, behaving ethically, you know, not lying, not killing, not stealing, that's actually a higher value than, say, a car or a cup of coffee. We can understand that. And that we would, there's actually a way in which our life becomes more meaningful when we start aiming more for those kinds of happinesses. Um, you know, we may still be working to pay the rent and working on physical things, but if, our, if we do work that is, say, compassionate or helpful in some way, and there's a lot, of, a lot of things we can do that are in that category, then we start to feel that sense of giving or that sense of, of participating and supporting people. Good relationships, good friendships, wishing well for people. These kinds of things are are good, and we can do those things even when we're not capable in some ways of achieving the sense pleasures. You know, there are times when we're very sick and we feel terrible and we're not able to go to our job. We're not really doing a lot to be able to generate those good physical feelings in our life, but we can still smile at the people taking care of us. We can still feel gratitude for what's going on. That will give us some degree of mental ease, even within a physical situation that isn't comfortable. So it's a higher happiness, more available, deeper. And then through practice, we gain even deeper reference points. So I mentioned that first sense of calm. That may not last. Usually when people start mindfulness, they first experience that, and then later they experience how wild their mind is. And they say, oh my God, I can't believe I started looking at my mind. There's all this stuff there. But of course, that's a little bit kidding. They, they're glad at some level to be looking at their mind. 
And so then there's the happiness of taming the mind, you know, the happiness of having some reliable degree of mindfulness, say, in our daily life, so that we uh, feel a little bit more confident, at least, that we're not going to strike out in reactivity or do something completely mindless. Even though we still might do that now and then, we might lose it in anger less often. We might interrupt people less often because we're mindful. And we can start to have a feeling of, wow, my mind is not as out of control as it used to be. Or we may even have sittings on occasion that are very deep and quiet. That can happen at any time in practice. You don't have to practice for years and years, usually, to have that sometimes. And then we have that sense Oh, my mind can really settle down sometimes. Sometimes all those conditions come together. And we have that, we carry with us some little piece of that calmness. Even though we may not be always calm at our job or in difficult family situations, but we know it's possible. This makes a big difference than if you didn't know that. So the, the mind, I think, naturally then starts to seek, okay, how can we do more of that? That was really nourishing. That was really good. And the Buddha suggests even you know, developing these mental states like loving kindness, like concentration. In the Metta Sutta, it says that sustaining the recollection of well-wishing for other beings is the sublime abiding that's pretty good to have a sublime abiding. And again, we may not feel that 100% of the time, but if you've done mental practice where you intentionally cultivate a feeling of goodwill, you know how it supports many areas of your life in surprising ways sometimes. Suddenly we feel more patience or we feel more forgiveness or... Um, a willingness, sometimes even creativity, comes from metta. And suddenly we see new ways that we could support or help people. And suddenly we surprise ourselves by doing something creative. So there's a lot that comes from that. And then we may begin to have insights in practice. We may see deeply into our own habitual patterns and understand how it is that even in just one aspect of life that we're causing ourselves suffering. And it's a huge insight for people when they come on retreat and have this or just through years of practice and they suddenly realize, my goodness, I'll just make something up. There's many, many of these that come, but you know, I'm, I'm still trying to please my parents at the age of 45, you know? It's, and you didn't see that for a long time. So these psychological insights or Dharma insights, you know, such as, my goodness, um, I'm going to die also. <laughs> That's actually a very important one. And, um, or simply that things change, you know. We realize after we've been through four or five jobs, after a few decades, oh, it's just a job. No job is perfect. They change. We, we gain some... Uh, some insight into our patterns and into how not to be swayed so much by the circumstances of life, this is actually a very deep kind of happiness. Is the happiness that starts to come through equanimity and through the wisdom of understanding impermanence, change, the way things are not going to stay the same, and that that's actually something we can flow with, and it's better when we flow with it. These are starting to be quite wise insights 
develop their practice and they bring a lot of happiness at some level. And then of course, if we continue to practice, we may have deep insight into the Four Noble Truths and eventually the mind may awaken and not cause suffering anymore in small ways or eventually in a complete way. This is what was pointed toward, of course, by the, by the Buddha, this possibility of transformation. So I'm framing, I'm framing the path as an continual deepening of the stability of happiness that we can have. Not that it's only happy, because we always have to work with the part of our mind that's telling us, no, you should sink back down, <laughs> go for the coffee. <laughs> but, you know, we get to even know that part of the mind and say, okay, I see you again. <laughs> there you are, okay. But we're not doing that today. So, so this understanding of higher and higher happinesses I just led a weekend retreat that included uh, contemplation of suttas and what I told them. So it's still on my mind, so that's why I'm, I'm going to read you guys a sutta. <laughs> but contemplation in a nutshell, what I offered to the group this weekend was that it's a way of feeling it in our body and allowing the words of the Dharma to enter our heart. Of course, they're words and they go in through the linguistic part of our mind, but they're not really to be thought about. They're not really to be understood like we would understand that 2 plus 3 is 5 and that has an answer. It's more like um, something that is, is, is speaking to the part of us that wants to find the higher happiness. And so there's a, the trust that's involved in contemplation is that when you you don't have to try to memorize or listen carefully to everything that's said. Let it wash over you and trust that the words that stand out, probably a couple phrases from it will stand out, that those are somehow important for you. And then you don't have to go into deep analysis. Just, you know, they, they were there for you. And conversely, the ones that happen to stand out are probably important for you. So if you're surprised that a particular word sticks in your mind, kind of wonder, huh? So what's important for you will stand out, and what stands out is important for you. In case I didn't say both of those before. Okay, so the sutta I'm going to read is one that I offered at the end of the weekend. It's called The Highest Blessings, the Maha Mangala Sutta. So the setting is that the Buddha is meditating, and a, a deity comes to him. This is just the setup. and But she asks a very important question. She says, many devas, or deities, and human beings have reflected on blessings, or we could say happinesses. They are longing for safety. So please tell what are the highest blessings. So it's a reasonable question for a Buddha. You know, what's the best thing I can do? People care about this. And so the Buddha gives this teaching, which is a series of stanzas that ascend through different levels of happiness. He calls them blessings, different levels of blessing. And they start out 
you'll see that they start out kind of physical and material and based on our job. And then they move into relationships and then into development of the mind, qualities like patience and humility, reverence and contentment. And then above that, there's listening to the Dharma and eventually realizing and developing the mind to realizing what the noble truths are to a state that doesn't suffer. So I'm just going to read these stanzas. There's maybe 10 of them. And then we'll sit after that and you can kind of rest in what stood out for you. Not associating with fools, associating with the wise, and venerating those worthy of veneration, this is the highest blessing. Residing in a suitable place, merit done in the past, and directing oneself rightly, this is the highest blessing. <coughs> Much learning, a craft, a well-trained discipline, and well-spoken speech, this is the highest blessing. Serving one's mother and father, maintaining a partner and children, and an honest occupation, this is the highest blessing. Giving and righteous conduct, assistance to relatives, blameless deeds, this is the highest blessing. Desisting and abstaining from evil, refraining from intoxicating drink, heedfulness in good qualities, this is the highest blessing. Reverence and humility, contentment and gratitude, timely listening to the Dhamma, this is the highest blessing. Patience, being amenable to advice, the seeing of sages, timely discussion of the Dhamma, this is the highest blessing. Austerity and the spiritual life, seeing the noble truths and the realization of Nibbana, this is the highest blessing. One whose mind does not shake when touched by worldly conditions, sorrowless, dust-free, secure, this is the highest blessing. Those who have done these things are victorious everywhere. Everywhere they go safely. Theirs is the highest blessing. <clears throat> 